The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Monday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. Not just any Monday. This is it. The start of the last big push, last week of the year for Congress, unless they start Adding days to the schedule, the last train leaves the station at the end of this week. And we've been talking about some pretty big stuff that needs to get done around here. Never mind funding the government with a shutdown possibly looming in January. I'm talking about Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and the big one, of course, the linchpin, the border. So read the headline on Jonathan Tamari's column today at Bloomberg Government. Congress's final week is equal parts acrimony. And compromise. And that is where we begin with Jonathan. It's good to see you reporting for Bloomberg government. Uh, and of course, all things Capitol Hill. Jonathan, um, I'm going to get to all the deal making in a moment. We've got pretty important news, though. And Volodymyr Zelensky returning to the Capitol in person. He'll be here tomorrow, not only to meet with all of the senators, which is a big enough deal, but he's going to sit down one on one with Speaker Mike Johnson. Does it change anything in the end, this last minute pitch? Uh, I mean, certainly that's what he's hoping for, uh, but it, it it's more a factor of whether not whether he's changing things, but how much has changed around him in Congress. The last time he addressed Congress, uh, you know, there was almost universal support from both chambers, both parties mm-hmm. for aiding Ukraine, helping them do Congress, trying to do almost anything they could do to support Ukraine in their fight against Russia. And now it's much, much more divided. Um, You know, House Republicans in particular are very skeptical of Ukraine aid. Senate Republicans support Ukraine aid, but they want it to be attached to border, tougher border policies. And so I think Mm -hmm. more so than anything, he might say the issue is whether Democrats and the White House and Senate Republicans can get to a point where they agree on those border policies and it's enough for the Republicans and it's something that Democrats can swallow. That's been the big holdup, and that's what we're all watching this week. He'll be speaking with uh, all of the senators, at least those who attend the all-senators meeting tomorrow morning at the invitation of Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. This meeting with the speaker, though, is interesting to me. He can talk to Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer all day long. It won't really change the game here. Is this about... President Zelensky speaking to Mike Johnson, or is it going to be Mike Johnson also sending a message to President Zelensky that this is not going to come as easily anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think that point has been made very clear. I I think this is my interpretation is that this is Zelensky trying to make one final push to the most important Republican in the House to say, listen, if, Mm -hmm. if, if we can get this aid through the Senate, trying to get those votes that he's going to need from the House to make it final if they can get that done this week. Uh, he's Zelensky has always been, um, you know, the best advocate for his country. He's, he's very skilled in, in public presentations. And so I think yeah. he's trying to close the deal that is a, a very difficult deal for him right now. Well, you also can't really talk about Ukraine without 
mentioning Israel. The supplemental request from the White House included funding for both, along with Taiwan and the border. This has since broken down into a slightly more complex and a lot more complex situation as we uh, as we approach these one by one. Jonathan Tamari, where is Israeli funding here? We're talking a lot about the border unlocking money for Ukraine. But if you ask Mike Johnson, those are separate bills that would come to the floor at different times, right? Yes, that is his plan. And in fact, the House has passed aid to Israel uh, on its own already a couple weeks ago now. The thing is, that was attached to big cuts to the IRS, which Democrats say Mm -hmm. is a non-starter. And Democrats want to pair all these things together. They say they're all in our national security interest and that the Senate is not going to move any of these individually. Um, The House would disagree with that. I think the fact Democrats certainly want to keep Israel aid in the package as something of a sweetener for those Republicans, even if they're not maybe fully satisfied with the border provisions, if any uh, get agreed to, that Israel can be something that still draws some Republican votes along. Mm -hmm. Well, there you have it then. It's Monday. Will any of this get done by the end of the week, Jonathan? I think that's that is the million dollar question that we're all watching for. You know, I think it's a big challenge for the people who support Ukraine, Um, you know, trying to tie this up with border funding. It's a big lift. Immigration has been, you know, one of the toughest issues in Congress for decades. And they're trying to close a deal here in a matter of days. Um, The only thing I would say is that I think with bipartisan support for Ukraine, bipartisan support for Israel, there is potentially room for everybody to get something that they want and to get this over the line. But I think it's going to be a tough lift. I would say the odds are against it, but I would not say it's impossible at this point. Holding out hope with Jonathan Tamari. Thank you, Jonathan. I know you've got a busy week ahead reporting for Bloomberg government with us here to get things started on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. As we turn to the situation in Israel now, the IDF pushing further into southern Gaza, 250 airstrikes or certainly 250 targets from the air, pushing now thousands of Palestinians toward the border with Egypt and questions now about where this is going to go. As we hear from the EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, who says the situation in Gaza is catastrophic, apocalyptic, with destruction proportionally even greater, he says, than that which Germany experienced in World War II, reporting by AFP. As we add the voice now of Hadar Suskin, the president and CEO of Americans for Peace Now, He spent time in the IDF as Sergeant First Class, and we've been looking forward to the conversation uh, for some time, Hadar, since you were with us a couple of weeks ago. Thank you for coming back. I wonder your reaction to what we're hearing now from the EU's top diplomat versus Israel's goal to eliminate Hamas. Thanks, Joe. I'm happy to be back here with you today. Uh, Look, there's no question that the situation in Gaza is catastrophic. Uh, We've all seen the pictures. We've all seen the videos. Um, The question is, you know, what can be done? And you stated Israel's goal of eliminating Hamas. Um, In Israel, there's an incredibly vibrant uh, argument, and we're seeing it here in Washington, too, about whether that's even a real achievable goal. And, you know, certainly everyone agrees Israel has the right to defend itself. Israel needed to respond to the atrocities that Hamas committed on October 7th. Um, But that doesn't answer the question of what are the actual goals of this campaign? What are they trying to achieve? 
And, you know, can it be done in any way that brings this conflict to a close sometime soon? Well, I'll tell you, the fierce fighting uh, comes with news from the IDF that Hamas is beginning to buckle, as I read in the Washington Post, uh, under the onslaught. Do we need then, as we talk about funding with strings attached to, uh, to international humanitarian law and so forth, should the funding simply be attached to, to an end game, an exit strategy here? And, and basically how, how we define eliminating Hamas, because there are many who argue that, that these strikes, the attacks by Israel against Gaza is creating a whole new generation of Hamas fighters. Yeah, again, you know, Hamas is um, an institution and it's also an idea. And I, you know, stand firmly with the people of Israel that Hamas cannot be left in power in Gaza in a, in a capacity to perpetrate uh, future events like what they did on October 7th. Everybody agrees on that. But to say you're going to eliminate Hamas, uh, I don't think anyone thinks is is feasible. And so the Israeli government needs to determine what that goal is. They need to be clear and specific about real achievable military goals. And, you know, on the question of aid, whether you're talking about the supplemental or aid to Israel overall, I you know, I support yeah. aid to Israel. But I think like all of our aid to every country, it should support U.S. policy priorities and American values. And I think that's the debate right now around conditioning aid is making sure that the military aid that we give to Israel, and it is all military aid, that it does support those U.S. policies and values. I was struck uh, by our conversation last time uh, by the way in which you saw both sides of this story, certainly as a former member of the IDF, uh, gives you some sympathy, some empathy for those troops who are going into very dangerous areas in Gaza. And that's been the impetus in many cases to strike from a distance, to strike from the air. Would you tell Israel to send more boots on the ground to be more precise? Look, I am not the uh, head of the IDF or a military Understood. strategist. Like you said, I do, I do have some of that experience. You know, it's a really difficult balance. It is uh, the job of the Israeli military to try to keep its soldiers and its civilians safe. And obviously, you know, bombing long distance uh, is safer than sending troops into the ground, uh, in on the ground. Mm -hmm. But it's also evident that you can't achieve all of the goals, including what I think should be the top goal of this Israeli campaign, which is the returning, the return of the remaining hostages cannot be achieved through bombing, cannot be achieved through, you know, long distance attacks. You need to have troops on the ground if your effort is going to be to militarily rescue them as they have tried. What's been successful, of course, was when there was a ceasefire and an agreement to release the hostages. That brings us to the potential for another truce. And I wonder where your, your thoughts are, because it, time is not going to help uh, heal wounds here. There, there are more aggravated feelings and emotions on both sides of the, of the line here. Do you think that was all we're going to get? Or could you see another week or two come out of this, knowing that Hamas has uh, its own reasons to seek a truce so it can regroup? Like it, it can't be all we're going to get, right? At some point, this war, this specific campaign is going to come to an end. And when it does, there'll still be Israelis there and there'll still be Palestinians there. And they're going to have to figure out how to live, if not together, then in proximity in a better way. And so there's the current hot button issues. There's, again, as you said, the, you know, 
incredible humanitarian crisis that's taking place in Gaza right now. Uh, you know, the death numbers keep climbing, not only from bombing, but now we're talking about deaths from disease, deaths from hunger, from lack of sanitation. So there's a huge crisis there that needs to be addressed imminently. And of course, there are still the hostages there. And there's still rockets flying from Hamas as well. It's not only Israel mm -hmm. who's bombing. So, you know, whether we're going to see that this week or next week or the next or the one after that, I don't know. I hope it is as soon as possible. I would like to see, you know, if what we can get is a temporary halt to release those hostages to allow more aid in, I think that would be a positive step. But it's only that, a step. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, there needs to be a ceasefire. There needs to be an end to this round of the conflict. And I hope that when we achieve that, when we get to that moment, it means the hostages have been released. And it means that people in Gaza can start rebuilding their lives as well. Hadar, I'm glad you could come back to talk to us. Hadar Suskin, President CEO, Americans for Peace now, uh, former Sergeant First Class in the Israeli Defense Forces. Good to have your insights today as we assemble our panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. And we'll have time uh, for everyone to, to be able to weigh in on this. Uh, when it comes to Israel, Jeannie, after what you just heard from Hadar, it's pretty difficult uh, to come to consensus in a conversation like this with such a complex uh, set of situations here on both sides. What's the view of Joe Biden when we hear about 250 more strikes overnight? Is any of the message from the White House being heard in Tel Aviv? It doesn't feel like it's being heard, and it's got to be deeply concerning. You know, look at the the step we took um, just the other day on the UN resolution. The Biden administration is going to have to really think about this passive strategy that they've adopted. You know, to to the point of your previous conversation, the reality is is our funding has to be conditioned on what is in the best interests of U.S. policy, what is within the uh, international law. And of course, yeah. the fact that Israel seems not to be listening is problematic. All right. We'll have more time on this, as I mentioned, with Jeannie and Rick. Also, the matter of Ukraine with President Zelensky visiting Washington again this week. We'll see what happens to the debate on both and we'll air it out here next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. President Zelensky will be meeting tomorrow with senators, with the new Speaker of the House, and with President Biden, but he's already here today. The delegation from Ukraine is in the capital. In fact, he appeared alongside Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, President Zelensky, uh, speaking earlier to the National Defense University. The real high-stakes day, though, is tomorrow, as he finally gets in front of some of the very lawmakers who have been doubtful over uh, the effort to continue funding Ukraine. Let's reassemble our panel. We have a lot to talk about today uh, with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. We'll get back to the matter of Israel in a moment. Rick, this uh, latest visit by President Zelensky uh, comes thanks to an invite from not only the White House, but the leadership in the Senate. What happens when he gets in a room with the Speaker of the House? That's, that's the real business at hand here. When he looks eye to eye with Mike Johnson, what should be the message? 
Well, I think, first of all, the atmospherics is he's coming off of a very bad week. Uh, the collapse of his visit last week, or at least the, the visit virtually uh, to the private briefing, the briefing itself uh, collapsed uh, due to the fact that there was no new information being imparted. Uh, you, you can try the senator's time all you want, but if you uh, ask them to go to a meeting where they don't learn anything, they're going to be pretty grumpy. And that's what you had at the end of last week, uh, a real negative turn. Uh, so he's got to overcome that. Uh, he's got to build a relationship with the new speaker. He really doesn't have one, certainly not since uh, Johnson's been elected speaker. And and he has to do it all in the context of trying to get something done in literally uh, one week uh, in order to try and preserve the funding that he needs to go into uh, uh, to extend the war uh, into new year. Uh, so it's a it's a monumental task and frankly one that uh, I think all the cards are stacked against his success, uh, which may actually be the blessing in disguise because uh, at this stage, uh, you know, just being able to build that relationship with Johnson might be enough to preserve an option for next year funding. Well, of course, we're not talking about Ukraine funding or apparently uh, Israel funding without a deal on the border. And I want to get both of your takes on this because we heard uh, from both the lead negotiators, the Democratic Republican Party, they both did the Sunday shows, although we heard from James Lankford, the Republican, of course, the senator here who's leading negotiations just outside the Capitol on the steps. He's coming into work today and he was on CNN. And I want to listen. I want you to listen to how close actually what Lankford and Chris Murphy, the Democrat, uh, are saying here. Here's James Langford with We've CNN. We've got a narrow majority in the House. We're in a minority in the Senate, and we don't have the White House on it. I mean, you know, we don't have the poll position to be able to resolve this. We're not going to be able to resolve every area uh, dealing with border security. But based on right now what's happening along the border, we shouldn't just ignore it. Okay, we're not going to be able to resolve every area with regard to the border. That's the Republican lead of negotiations. Here's the Democrat on Meet the Press, Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Ukraine is running out of ammunition. And if we don't solve this in the next few weeks, Vladimir Putin is going to have an opening, an opening to march through the Ukrainian lines to make a move on Kiev, threatening all of Europe. So this has to be resolved right now, which is why Republicans have to be reasonable. We are not going to solve the entire problem of immigration between now and the end of the year, mm. but we can make a down payment. Again, we're not going to solve the entire problem of immigration. Jeannie, it was almost word for word. Does that make you feel like we're getting more realistic about a compromise here? We might get something done? Yeah, I mean, I think they both indicated over the weekend that progress was being made definitely better than they were the weekend before. I, I, one big concern in my mind was hearing Chris Murphy over the weekend saying the White House is going to get more engaged. It yes, would seem right. to me, given the timing, that their height of engagement would have been like three years ago. So the idea that we're waiting for the last minute um, for them to come in in a heightened engagement is a bit troubling to me because time is certainly not on our side. But, you know, on the opposite side, we did hear the president last week say that the White House was engaged. So getting some mixed signals on that is a little bit troubling. But, you know, the reality is, is this was always the downside of tying all these together was if one thing goes down, everything crumbles. So, you know, we've got to hope they can keep all these balls in the air and keep this moving forward. And I think that the White House really has to jump on this. What I see is a gift by Republicans. 
The immigration mm. issue is a loser for Democrats. They should be jumping yeah. on this, get a deal and claim success as soon as possible. I know that's easier said than done, but I think Biden's got to be out there pushing for a deal of any kind, even mm. incremental on immigration. Rick, you just heard uh, Lankford and uh, Murphy speaking about this. Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, had an interview from Guatemala. He was down there over the weekend looking into this issue, and he spoke with Punchbowl. Quote, we cannot ignore the reality of the numbers and where they're coming from. We did not design the border policies for the volume of this nature, unquote. You're hearing Democrats, it sure sounds to me, Rick, indicate that they are ready to make a deal. Are we closer than we were a week ago? Yeah, I think we're closer. I mean, you know, everybody was uh, talking about uh, a week before last, the death of these negotiations. Oh, my God, they left. And, yeah. You know, they didn't finish anything. Uh, and they're still talking. And, and, and as you portrayed, it sounds like they're saying exactly the same thing. I, I would say a little sure different does. than Jeannie's take. I, I think Biden should get involved, but he needs to talk to his Democrats. They're the ones who are saying no to a deal that Langford's got on the table. And so if Biden's smart, he's making sure that the Democrats in the Senate aren't being too tough in their negotiation. He needs a deal no matter what that deal is, and he needs it worse than they do. And so I think that that could be a positive to actually get a deal done. He's not going to have any influence with Republicans, but he could have an impact with Democrats who might be standing in the way of a border deal. Interesting numbers here on funding for Ukraine. And to your point, Jeannie, this could be a gift for for Joe Biden. It could be a gift in more ways than one. You take the border off the table in a campaign year uh, and you overcome apparently pretty real opposition here, at least real skepticism over funding for Ukraine. Half of registered voters. This is a University of Michigan Ross School of Business poll. They did it with the Financial Times. 48% say the U.S. is spending too much on aid for Ukraine. 60, that's overall. 65% of Republicans say too much compared with 52% of independents and 32% of Democrats. This is clearly an independent and Republican concern, Jeannie. So is this two gifts the Republican Congress could give Joe Biden? It is, but I, those numbers are so important because they underscore what Franklin Roosevelt told all leaders. You have to educate the public. When you are sending millions and billions of dollars somewhere else of people's hard-earned money and they are suffering at home, you have an obligation to educate them on why it's in our interest to do that. And that is what needs to happen. It would be a disaster for the U.S., from almost every perspective to walk away from Ukraine right now. And that is got to be said over and over. You can't say it enough. Otherwise, the numbers that you just read will continue. And if Congress did support the funding, there would be questions and it would not look good for President Biden come 2024 when people go to the polls. So educate, yeah. educate, educate's got to happen here. Rick, we've got a minute to the news. I just want to give you a chance to weigh in on the conversation that we were having earlier uh, on the situation in Israel. To what extent is the Biden administration, do you think, or should be helping to call shots, helping to actually influence military strategy right now in Israel as it conducts its raids in Gaza? Well, I think that they are actively trying to weigh in on the death of civilians, right? It's, there's nothing in it mm -hmm. for the United States to use uh, our money and weaponry uh, to uh, uh, to kill a lot of civilians in harm's way. Uh, there's no question there are collateral damage to this offensive by Israel. 
Uh, and and we've been, I think, a positive force in in trying to find ways for the Israelis to avoid those clashes. That being said, mm-hmm. Israel has their battle plan. It's their battle plan, and they're going to execute it as they seem fit. And even though we are a reliable and important ally to them, I think they'll listen, but we can't dictate terms to them. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to Hour 2 of Bloomberg Sound On. We're back to Washington now. Kaylee Lines at my side as we drive forward here on the fastest show in politics. I just don't know where we're driving. Yeah. We've been, like, winding up to this week for weeks. Uh, we added a border deal we added a laddered CR. We've got all kinds of stuff flying around here. No one has a path on anything, apparently. But maybe that's just when news breaks, Kaylee. I'm holding out hope. Well, I guess you can't rule it out, right? Something could always happen in the next couple of days before they head home for the holidays, assuming right. that they do, as scheduled, head home at the end of this week, mm-hmm. even if they haven't gotten much on the to-do list done before doing so. That's right. We're going to talk to Mick Mulvaney in just a moment. Um, I'm going to guess that, you know, he's probably listening to us right now and he thinks we're sounding pretty downbeat. I know Mick will lift our spirits. Will he? If, if Jack Fitzpatrick <laughs> does not. From Bloomberg Government. Uh, Jack, good to see you. This is your time. This is like Christmas morning for someone who covers appropriations. Um, but will there be appropriations to cover? And are we really going home this week or do lawmakers get a letter in a couple of days saying and you're work through the weekend. I don't know when the holidays start, especially for the Senate. You've had this letter that came out last week from the White House saying your deadline to get a deal for Ukraine funding, which is locked up with these border talks, is the end of the calendar year. They're scheduled to leave December 15th. I'd be a little surprised if they left early, if they left on December 15th without a deal for Ukraine, having been told by the White House, we absolutely need something this year. And it does not, even if today is a good day, tomorrow is a good day in negotiations, it doesn't sound like they could actually pass something through both chambers, even if there was a handshake deal now. Well, that's what I was going to say, Jack. It's one thing if the Senate agrees and can get it done. It then has to go to the House and be voted on by enough House Republicans, who are many of whom are very resistant to the idea of further Ukraine and Ukraine aid and would only like to see HR2 essentially when it comes to border policy. So the reconciliation is difficult to see here. Yeah, the tougher part, I think, is the border measures and the pressure that it could put on House Republican leadership. They've been pushed to say, we want all of HR2, even if there are concessions there. Um, you could get Democratic votes. In a bipartisan deal that's going to get through the Senate, you can count on anything requiring Democratic support. So you don't need to get 218 votes from Republicans. But the the key question in the House is how much pressure does the Freedom Caucus put on Mike Johnson, the new speaker? Does it get to the point where his stance as the leader of the conference is shakier if he doesn't get a really good deal 
on border measures. And that's the really tough stuff. They, there's still plenty of Republicans who are supportive of Ukraine, mm. but it's the uh, it's the quid pro quo that makes yeah. it complicated. The commentary that we're hearing, though, from both Chris Murphy and James Lankford, it's kind of amazing. We cooked it down in the last hour. They're using word for word language that makes you wonder if maybe they're closer than it appears. I'll walk you through it. This is James Lankford just a short time ago on CNN. Manaraj, you got him as he was coming We've up. We've got a narrow majority in the House. We're in a minority in the Senate, and we don't have the White House on it. I mean, you know, we want the poll position to be able to resolve this. We're not going to be able to resolve every area uh, dealing with border mm. security. But you, based you on the we're not going to be able to resolve every if we area. Don't solve this in the next few weeks. Here's Chris Murphy. Vladimir Putin is going to have an opening, an opening to march through the Ukrainian lines to make a move on Kiev, <coughs> threatening all of Europe. So this has to be resolved right now, which is why Republicans have to be reasonable. We are not going to solve the entire problem of immigration between now and the end of the year, but uh -huh. we can make a down payment. They're basically saying the same thing. So are we going to get some form of immigration light here? We're not going to solve the entire problem. But here's what we've got. That is the focus. The, there is a lot of it. There's a real reality check from Senate Republicans, even, uh, in, with regard to House Republicans' expectations. House Republicans are saying, we want everything that we passed in our partisan bill on the border you heard James Lankford. Uh, you may have heard last week Tom Tillis say mm -hmm. they'll get what we send them. But it's still very difficult to get a deal uh, in the Senate. The proposals that have been put forward, according to Chris Murphy, yep. from Republicans are ones that would not get any Democratic support, let alone enough to get 60 votes in the Senate. And you do still have that political pressure on Mike Johnson. There, there could be a difference between the House Republican stance and the Senate Republican stance that makes it difficult to get something through. All right, I would say Jack sounded pretty downbeat there as well. Not, Joe. not really optimistic. Yeah, not upbeat, that's for sure. Right. Jack Fitzpatrick of Bloomberg Government, thank you so much Jack as always. Jack it straight, though. I'm not going to wait for Jack beat. to absolutely Neutral right. beat, that's perhaps. Great. Should we get the beat from, from Mick Mulvaney, of course, a yeah. former congressman? Yeah. it better not be neutral. I'm himself. sure it won't be. As our listeners know, we talk to him every Monday, and we give the whole list of the resume. Mick, mm. I'll skip that. Are we too downbeat, or are we appropriately <laughs> downbeat? What's your take here? Uh, I think you're appropriately downbeat. And keep in mind, and everybody mm. knows this now, that Washington is is not going by any of the, of the typical playbooks, right? So anybody says, oh, yeah, this is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. Just isn't paying attention because we're sort of off the rails when it comes to how Washington is functioning. So the best I think I can do, Keely, is give you some additional data points, right? Um, number one. The whole idea behind this laddered CR, at least one of the ideas behind the laddered CR, was to take the pressure off that traditionally exists before Christmas. Conservatives in the House really, really hated it when leadership, even in their own party, used the Christmas holidays to pressure them to do something. And I think you saw some, some creativity from Mike Johnson to move it beyond, move the, the funding issues now beyond Christmas and get it into the new year. That was done for a reason. Okay, so factor that into the whether or not something's mm -hmm. going to get done right now. Also, put your put your put your, your yourself. Yes, the House says they want everything, and I get that. But they actually have passed something that not that something the Democrats like, but they passed something on foreign aid, um, and I think they defunded the IRS. I don't think they've done it. Then they passed HR two. At least they passed something. The Senate, while they say, look, we you know the House will take what the Senate can pass, what we send them. That's you know that's there's that's not wrong. 
but that only becomes relevant once the Senate actually passes something. And, and as your man pointed out, the Senate hasn't passed anything yet. It doesn't show any sort of willingness or at least ability in the next 40 hours to pass something. So uh, everything you've just heard is correct from, from your, your guy in the hymn. I apologize. I can't, I can't remember his name. Everything you guys have mentioned is correct. And you take those other pieces and parts and where do you get? I still get that nothing happens before Christmas. There's one other yeah. One other factor, um, the, the House members, the, 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 the right wing of the Republican Party is not going to believe the Office of Management and Budget when it says Ukraine is going to run out of money by Christmas. They are going to perceive that, rightly or wrongly, as a manufactured deadline. Uh, sort of, oh, here we are again. It's the same old thing about using our, our vacation against us. So you can discount that. So you put all that together, and I'm, I'm fairly downbeat at getting anything done this week, and I don't think they're staying past Saturday. What do you make of the in-person uh, pitch? President Zelensky here tomorrow is going to do the bilateral with Joe Biden and all senators meeting. I'll be curious to see how many senators show up and, you know, the, at the invitation of Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. Then he's got a one-on-one with Mike Johnson. Mick, I'd love to, to get your thoughts on both sides of this conversation because President Zelensky knows what's yeah. going on. He knows this is tied to the border. He's heard the refrain. The White House is keeping him uh, up to speed here. What does he tell the speaker? And maybe it's more important. What does the speaker have to tell him? Uh, listen, Zelensky is the best salesman they have. There's no question about it. You have to take your head off to the guy. When I met him a couple of times in, in person when I was in the White House, I was not impressed. I have been thoroughly impressed with the way he's conducted himself since the, the Russian invasion. So he is their best salesman. He's the right person to send here. I'm not sure what he says, Joe, because here's the question I would ask. Okay, you, you ran out, of, you ran out of, uh, of, of, of ammunition and we sent you that and it didn't work. You ran out of money to run your government and we sent you that and that's not working. Now you're running out of men. We're not going to send you any men, people. You're running out of men and women to fight this battle. We're not. We're not doing that. So, what's your? What is your plan? Uh, what What comes next? Other than us writing you a, a blank check, and I, I know that's a, a derogatory term in some people's mind. It certainly is in mine. But what What is the plan other than just asking us for more of the same that hasn't worked so far? That's a really tough question um, to ask, and a really tough question for him to answer. So, again, he's the right person to do it. But there could be some very frank and very difficult conversations for him. The toughest questions he's had um, since he's been coming to Washington over the last two years. But Mick, is this really about the plan or is this about the alternative, which is Russia getting its way in Ukraine? Isn't that much greater a risk than maybe some money being used ineffectively? Yes and, and, and no. I guess the question is, it's really hard to go home and tell people we spent another X number of dollars on Ukraine. They don't really have a plan, but we don't know what else to do. And by the way, we didn't get anything on the border. That 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 doesn't sell well. Um, in fact, that doesn't sell well in even in some Democrat districts. Keep in mind, this whole border thing has morphed, Kaylee, a little bit. I'm not trying to oversell this. I, I'm not trying to pick, pick a side. Yes, I'm biased. I'm a Republican. I get all that. But keep in mind, the border is now a topic that is crossing party lines. When you have the Democrat mayors in New York and Chicago and Washington, D.C., and even secondary and tertiary cities complaining about border policies, it, it, it starts to sort of bleed over. It's no longer just a right-wing conservative thing that pops up, say, in a Republican primary. It's going to start to impact those swing districts. So it's really hard to go back and say, oh, yeah, we gave Ukraine money. Um, we don't know what we gave it to them for, but we did to say we're doing something and we didn't do anything on, on the border. That that's not a very tenable position for a lot of folks, not just Republicans. Well, so what needs to happen when you hear Chris Murphy 
Speaking open-mindedly, the White House says it's open to refining asylum law, maybe enhancing the deportation process. Dick Durbin speaking today with the tip sheets this morning from Guatemala. He says, we cannot ignore the reality of the numbers and where they're coming from any longer. Mick, that feels like we're closer, not further away, don't you think? Oh, it's a great point. And so let's 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 move the chess pieces as to how do you get to a deal? Okay, the yeah. Senate passes something, anything, right? Right now, again, the, until the Senate passes anything, this is sort of you're you're you know you're uh, well you're, you're not making much progress. I'd use a derogatory sort of uh, analogy, but you're not doing anything productive until the Senate passes something. The Senate passes something that puts a lot of pressure on the House. Uh, and maybe that's when you start to have those conversations. But OK, boys and girls, we, we can't get all of H.R. 2, but we can get asylum reform. We can get some maybe return to Mexico. I don't know. Pick something out. of it. We're not going to get everything. That's where that language that you just heard James Langford use uh, about we're not going to mm-hmm. get everything. Keeping in mind, James, yes. though, a good House member is now a senator, runs every six years, not every two. Um, but yet that that dynamic starts to come into focus. So if you want to imagine how you mm-hmm. get to an end result here. The Senate has to pass something. They go back to the House and they sort of meet in the middle. That's how you get something done. I just don't see that happening by Christmas. Yeah, it's definitely tough when we're speaking in terms of just days here. But Mick, to the point of what we've heard consistently from Senator Lankford, among them is the idea that H.R. 2 passed the House with absolutely no Democratic support. So to paraphrase his words, essentially that it's unfair for the Senate to expect to get enough Democrats on board to pass something similarly. Is that a reality that just frankly doesn't really matter to this House of Representatives? No, again, that's the negotiating language you're going to use, right? And again, there's going to be people in the House who who don't want to negotiate on anything. Keep in mind, Matt Gates has already proved he's not there to try and solve any problems. So take the the crazy folks out of the equation um, in the House. And again, does that raise an issue about Mike Johnson's viability? Yes, it does. But let's just focus on this issue at hand, that if you are a, a conservative, a normal conservative Republican, and you're sort of the, the, the deciding votes and whether or not something can pass on a bipartisan basis in the House. Um, are you listening to James? Yeah, I think you probably are. You're, you're OK, look, we, we get something here. We haven't got anything on, on, on immigration, uh, under, especially under the Biden administration. We haven't had any really good uh, legislation on immigration in a long time. That could be I could sell that as a win in my conservative red district back in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Mick, I've got to ask you about your former boss before you go away, because this dictator thing <laughs> seems to be getting real. Oh, what do you want to know? But then again, yeah. I don't know. Well, look, it seemed like we're normalizing the dictator thing now. This is Donald Trump in New York over the weekend following his uh, his interview with Sean Hannity. A baker today in the New York Times, he said uh, that I want to be a dictator. I didn't say that. I said I want to be a dictator for one day. But the New York Times said... And you know why I wanted to be a dictator? Because I want a wall, (laughs) right? I want a wall, and I want to drill, drill, drill. All right. Well, we won't get into whether he's built the wall, which he says, but uh, is is he doing this dictator thing just to get the, the, the media in a lather? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly. It's a, he's trolling. That's exactly. He's done that before. You know, he, and he'll do it again. Yeah. He'll start talking about running in twenty twenty four, and then again in twenty twenty eight. He knows how to play the media. <laughs> he knows how to drive a media cycle. This is what he does. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's the first time I've heard that audio. I, I've I've seen it in print and so forth. But Joe, the thing that jumped out at me there, he sounds really really tired. Um, that is that's uh, not that's mm-hmm. not the typical. Tr- he's under the weather. He got a cold. 
or wow. he's that doesn't sound that doesn't sound like Donald Trump to me. So and by the way, skip ahead. Oof. He also said something over the weekend. He went back to the Access Hollywood tape for the talking about a general. Yeah, I heard oh. that. <laughs> oh, if there was only time to play all of this with Mick Mulvaney, I'm going to call you when they come after me, Mick. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Last week for Congress to get anything done, at least that's what they say this Monday. We'll see if the schedule changes later in the week. You know, if we get some progress on a border deal, for instance, we could be working through the weekend and maybe into next week. Maybe we do creep up on Christmas. Anything is possible here in the Capitol. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington alongside Kaylee Lyons as we read the tea leaves on a possible border deal here, Kaylee, knowing that President Zelensky will be here tomorrow. Yep. He's, of course, coming for the big ask, the last uh, ditch ask on Ukraine funding. But that can't move until there is a deal on the border. And interesting to hear from uh, Chris Murphy over the weekend, the Democratic lead negotiator, that without any real progress happening on Capitol Hill, maybe it's time for the White House to start leaning in. Yeah, there's kind of three parties involved in these negotiations, really. There's Mm -hmm. Senate Democrats, Mm -hmm. Senate Republicans, and then the White House, which initiated this emergency funding request in the first place, including not only funding for Ukraine, but funding for the border as well. Mm -hmm. Money, not necessarily policy changes, however. And I think that is wherein lies the rub Mm -hmm. when it's real policy changes that Republicans in Congress are looking for. Yeah, and the reporting at the end of last week, it sure seemed like we were getting closer to something. The White House says it's open to refining asylum law, open to enhancing the deportation program. That's like halfway to a deal, it seems to me. Halfway, though. Yeah, well. Is not all the way. Maybe it's the second half of the journey that proves a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. Let's add a voice to this conversation. Someone who has worked closely with a presidential campaign, keeping in mind President Biden is not just in the White House, he wants to stay there. Yep. Throughout 2025 and beyond. This is going to be a massive issue on the campaign, period. A big challenge for him. Lonnie Chen's joining us now. He, of course, is a former policy advisor on Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, now at the Hoover Institution and a lecturer at Stanford Law. Lonnie, thank you so much for joining us. If you are not just the Biden White House, but the Biden campaign, how important is it to get border policy right and to do it quickly? It's crucial. I mean, if you look at all of the recent polling about this presidential campaign, we know that there are two issues that are really animating voters above all else. One is the economy, the state of the economy, uh, as it tends to be in every election. And the second is immigration. It's, It's really border security. And so for President Biden and for his team, the ability to get a deal done on border security gives him the potential Uh, to at least close the margin on this issue. The poll we saw from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, for example, 
tells us that former President Trump has a significant advantage over President Biden when it comes to public perceptions about handling border security and immigration. So this kind of a deal, if the president were to be able to strike something that enhances border security that he can use to market during his campaign would be a significant point of advantage and something I know the Biden campaign cares deeply about. Arguably a gift. Uh, We've heard argued before on this program for Joe Biden that Republicans are giving him a reason to take the border off the table in this campaign while also taking care of our allies uh, in Ukraine. Israel seems to be a little bit less of a lift uh, in Congress. But Lonnie, I've got a, another poll for you, and it's from the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business with the Financial Times. They put this together specifically on the matter of uh, funding for Ukraine. 48% of registered voters, half essentially, say the U.S. is spending too much on aid for Ukraine. 65% of Republicans feel that way. And that's compared with only 32% of Democrats. So would you describe Republicans as the party of no when it comes to Ukraine? Well, Joe, I would say that there's skepticism broadly. The poll points out, you know, there's a substantial number of Democrats who also have doubts. I do think amongst Republicans, those doubts are stronger. There's no question about it. I would say the lack of... um, uh, of what appears to be outcomes for all the spending so far. I think that troubles some Republican voters. Hmm. Uh, I think, frankly, the the lack of some transparency around where this money is going. I think the administration could afford to be a little bit more forthcoming, probably, about at least how they've spent the money. I know that there are uh, various controls in place, and, and that's important. But fundamentally, when voters uh, see a lot of money going out the door, don't necessarily see uh, what's happening, we appear to be at, at virtual stalemate uh, in Ukraine now. I think there are concerns about where that money's going, and those are going to be particularly acute amongst Republicans. And therefore, no surprise that increasingly you're hearing voices in the Congress amongst Republicans uh, say that there need to be more conditions placed on this money, that there has to be a little bit more accountability, and maybe some even saying that the flow of funds needs to slow down or stop. Well, so when we think about foreign policy as maybe something that doesn't necessarily have as much weight when it comes to the mind of the U.S. voter, is it so much the domestic politics that matter or the consideration of the international politics at play, the message it sends if the U.S. says, you know what, Ukraine, you're on your own from here on out? I think the international uh, politics are are part of the scene setting. They're not necessarily going to be dispositive for voters. I don't think there's been any real recent evidence that we've seen presidential campaigns hinge on issues of national security directly, perhaps since 2004, uh, shortly after the 9-11 attacks uh, on New York and, and the Pentagon. Uh, but I would say that for voters, the foreign policy issues uh, formulate, help, to, help them to formulate their views of candidates and whether a candidate is strong or weak, whether a candidate is uh, is vital or not. I think these kinds of issues, clearly issues that have affected President Biden's approval ratings, for example, are impacted by his perceived lack of good handling in, in the foreign policy sphere. And uh, the most recent polling we have on this from over the weekend, again, suggests that a lot of Americans don't believe the president has handled the situation in Ukraine particularly well. They don't believe he's handled the situation in the Middle East particularly well, even though there's nothing to directly blame him for. Uh, in many cases, I think that there uh, is this sense that uh, how people view his presidency generally leaks into their views of foreign policy and vice versa. You know what it's like to be 35 days out from Iowa. 
And I wonder your thoughts on this Ann Selzer poll today. This is the Hawkeye State Survey, NBC News, Des Moines Register, 51% for Donald Trump. The highest lead, the highest level ever recorded at this point in a competitive Republican caucus. The next stop down the line here is Ron DeSantis at 19, then Nikki Haley at 16. Are we all done here? Well, we're not done until voters actually vote, but obviously the the indications from what are probably the most credible poll, Ann Selzer's poll, is, is the most credible poll we have tended to have historically in Iowa, yeah. uh, tells us that in that state, at least, uh, former President Trump has a commanding lead. And, you know, I, I think really the big question is, does he hold that magnitude lead? If he holds that magnitude lead through the Iowa caucuses, uh, this is going to be a pretty short nominating contest, I think. Uh, but let's say, for example, the former president wins Iowa, but only by eight or nine points. Uh, or there's a strong second place finish from Nikki Haley, who, as you see in that poll right now, is running a close third. I, I think that those are the conditions that could create an interesting nominating contest. But if that result holds, if the former president continues to be in a commanding uh, uh, position, if he's up 30 points, there's really not much conversation to be had. So uh, I think a lot of this is gonna depend on what actually happens. And bear this in mind as well, Joe, Iowa is very good at picking winners of Iowa, not necessarily of the entire presidential uh, nominating cycle. You know, we saw, Uh, Rick Santorum barely edge out Mitt Romney when I worked on that campaign in 2012. We saw, uh, uh, you know, Ted Cruz do well in 2016. So it's very hard for us to put, I think, too much stock in what happens in Iowa, except to say that it has an impact on what happens in New Hampshire, South Carolina and subsequently. Well, but it's not just Iowa where the former president has a commanding lead. It just perhaps is most commanding uh, in the Hawkeye state. Lonnie, you were talking a moment ago about how foreign policy and showing strength in that regard is something that maybe voters find appealing in candidates. Just how how real of a chance do you think Nikki Haley has, knowing that she does have that foreign policy experience and she's been flexing it quite a lot on the debate stage as former ambassador to the U.N.? I mean, I think she presents a lot of really uh, unique talents, and I think in this race has has a lot of unique uh, points of view that could be very helpful to her. Now, the question will be, can she get enough oxygen to last through South Carolina, her home state, when when she has the potential uh, to do quite well? I think in New Hampshire, where you have a a, a primary for president where non-Republicans can vote, that's sort of a unique thing about New Hampshire. Uh, That's why Chris Christie is developing uh, his infrastructure there. It's why Nikki Haley has invested so much time there. Uh, Really what it's going to take is for her to not just burnish those foreign policy credentials, but be able to talk clearly about why she's the better choice. And all the polling reveals that while, uh, you know, Donald Trump does beat Joe Biden, if you look at the head to head nationally, as well as in key states, uh, if Nikki Haley were the Republican nominee, it wouldn't even be particularly close. So Nikki Haley, at least from the data, appears to be the strongest Republican candidate. She's got to keep making that point and and driving that home through Iowa, New Hampshire and these early states if she wants to have any chance at at knocking off someone who's a prohibitive favorite. Sounds to me like we're going to know around South Carolina, uh, and that's not far away, third or fourth contest on the list here, who the Republican nominee is going to be, Lonnie. Do you agree with that or are we going to start – having sugar plums in our heads about a contested convention like we do every four years. You know, it's going to be very hard for us to determine how contested this will be until, as you say, we get past the first couple states. 
And let's not forget, there will be a, a tremendous number of delegates on the line in Super Tuesday, the first Tuesday in March, including California, uh, which has, uh, I think at last count, almost 200 delegates to be awarded uh, in that contest. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there there are a lot of things yet to develop, but certainly if Donald Trump does as we expect he will do in these first three states, if he sweeps these first three states, states it's very, very challenging uh, to see how this contest goes on much farther than, than Super Tuesday. Lonnie, Joe's brought it up a few times so far this show, but the dictator comments mm. that the former president seems only to have doubled down on, frankly. He just wants to be a dictator on day one. Is that a play for more media attention, or do you think that's real? Well, uh, you know, Mitt Romney over the weekend, uh, you know, when we were on Meet the Press together, described mm-hmm. it as, uh, as a human gumball machine, and I think that that's kind of an interesting and, and probably apt comparison when you're talking about, uh, about, uh, about the former president. Uh, yeah, I think that he has a way of taking these comments and driving them amongst his voters, his constituency, uh, to to continue to demonstrate the degree to which he believes that the so-called mainstream media is out of step with uh, with his voters, with his supporters. And so uh, I, I, like others, don't necessarily put a whole lot of stock in it. Look, this is not the kind of thing you want a presidential candidate saying. I understand that. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, for the former president, uh, it, it is part of his persona. It is part of who he is. It is part of who he projects. Uh, and and I, I don't think he sees it as particularly problematic, which is why, you know, you haven't seen him try to even walk it back. And and contrary to that, actually double down uh, on these comments. And so uh, I don't think he perceives it as a problem. I think he believes that it is a demonstration of strength. And to our conversation earlier, strength is something that matters a lot in these not just primary elections, but elections more broadly. At the Hoover Institution, of course, a veteran of the Mitt Romney campaign, Lonnie Chen. It's great to see you joining us live from New York here on Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks for sharing the insights as always, Lonnie, and don't be a stranger. Thanks for listening to the Sound On podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.